Well, good morning, man. It's good to be with you. Uh, man, I uh, really miss hearing our sister's voice, voices singing with us this morning, but it is good to hear male voices sing out loud. Uh, so it's good to sing with you, to be with you. My name is Nathan. It's so, so good to be here with you again at one of these uh, seminars. I was with you back here in October to help us think through the gospel man and technology. I'm going to move back just a little bit. There we go. Um, and so it is good to be back here together to think about this really important topic of pornography. Uh, and you Christchurch guys, we are glad that you have joined us here as well. Uh, welcome to my old stomping grounds, this room. I've stood right here doing something like this more times than I can count, uh, but it is wild that you all, Desert Springs, sent us out as Christchurch uh, now over five years ago. Uh, time flies. And so there are many of you Christchurch guys who have zero connection to Desert Springs Church and had to ask where the building was. Uh, so that's wild. Um, but we are here to think about an unbelievably important topic. I've gotten to the point over the past decade or so uh, that unless I have heard you tell me specifically of specific victories and grace in this area of pornography, I just assume that if you are a male of pubescent age, this is to some degree or another uh, an issue for you, an ongoing struggle for you. Uh, I don't think that's overly cynical. It's just a decade or so of empirical evidence. And even if this isn't something of a personal struggle for you right now at this moment, uh, you have countless friends for whom it is. Uh, Dave said earlier, there are maybe some of you for whom this is still a struggle. I'm, I'm guessing maybe the majority. Uh, so even if this is, is not an issue for you today, uh, there are men sitting at your table for whom it is. There are men sitting in your spheres of influences and in your relationships for whom it is. So this is something that we need ongoing clarity in ongoing focus in. So there are just many, many approaches to thinking about pornography, both from Christian and non-Christian perspectives these days. More and more non-Christians are beginning to realize the problem of pornography, its effect on the brain. Things like regular use of pornography can certainly rewire neural connections in the brain very similarly to the way that meth or cocaine can. Sociologists are observing that teenage and premarital sex these days is sharply decreasing. Now that sounds like good news, right? That premarital sex is sharply, teenage sex is sharply decreasing. That sounds like good news, but until you realize that it's likely just because of pornography addiction. That sex with another human is just more difficult. And that's concerning. And marriage and birth rates are beginning to certainly reflect that. Not to mention that the kind of sex that pornography teaches us is very concerning. Many of you know of a pitcher for the Dodgers who has been on leave for about a month now uh, as police investigate allegations that he choked out his girlfriend with her hair into unconsciousness as he had sex with her. He claims that this is consensual, that this is both what they wanted and both what they were uh, thinking about and desiring. She says, absolutely not the case. It's in the face of this kind of reality that the New York Times profiled a sex-positive educator at a swanky uh, New York prep school over her lecture to high school students about, quote, porn literacy. She gave a lecture to high school students about porn literacy. Her worldview is that since pornography is so ubiquitous, it is just a certain inevitability 
that teenage boys and girls will regularly go to it, that we should expose them to pornography as early as possible. We should expose them to different categories. We should expose them to interviews with performers so that students, teenagers, young teenagers, perhaps even prepubescent teenagers, will learn how to, quote, uh, sorry, will learn how to, quote, critically assess what they see on the screen. For example, how to recognize what is realistic and what is not how to deconstruct implicit gender roles, how to identify what types of behavior could be a health or a safety risk. This is the world we live in. More or less, it's the air we breathe, the sexual air that we breathe today. And as Christians, most of us, I'm assuming most of us in this room, don't like that we keep coming back to it. And yet, we're not sure how to get out of it, out of the grasp, the hold of pornography and or sexual sin. So we've treated it like an addiction. There are certainly some methods of counseling and uh, approaches to fighting this where we can treat it and approach it like other addictive substances. We've tried to guilt our way out of it. We've tried to discipline our way out of it. We've tried to even gospel our way out of it. And yet, we still can't seem to make progress or find victory. Well, hopefully today will be a small, perhaps even a monumental step towards progress, towards victory. And maybe, as we get started here, maybe, let me just say this, that today, this is the day that for some of you, many of you, perhaps all of us, that the last time that we looked at pornography was the last time of our life. Today might be the day of death. Today might be the day of life. But we'll get there. We've got much to do. So I'm going to tell you where we're headed in our first 35 minutes or so together here in this first session. We're going to think about the purpose of ordered sexuality. That is why God made us as sexual beings in the first place. If we don't understand that, then we will constantly be fighting the wrong battles. And then in our next session, after we take some time to think about that first session together around our tables, uh, then we will then consider the wreckage of disordered sexuality. So the purpose of ordered sexuality and the wreckage of disordered sexuality. All right, let's get into it. Before we get going, can I just say that we probably need uh, more, much more than 35 minutes, probably like three to four hours probably uh, a month-long, maybe a decade-long seminar <laughs> on what we are about to get into. That is, that the story of our sexuality, that both the world and even the church has shaped us in, means that our sexuality has unfortunately become so ingrained to who we are as humans. Darwinian models explain that your sexuality is inherently and innately an evolutionary impulse merely to ensure the propagation of our species. Pleasure evolved with sex to ensure that we keep having sex. So sex is merely nothing more than neurons or chemicals. It's important, but it's ultimately not that big of a deal. It's not really anything different than any other kind of human interaction that you have that gives you any some sort of pleasure or chemical firing in your brain. Well, there's that model, that sex isn't that big of a deal, so who really cares? Or there are psychological models, like from Sigmund Freud or Alfred Kinsey, that explain that nearly every aspect of your life 
can be explained or interpreted by some understanding of your sexual desire and, and or your corresponding repression of sexual desire or your lack of sexual expression. So humans can only really understand themselves or live fully realized lives as they begin to break sexual norms and experiment in whatever way brings them the most happiness. This dominant narrative today is why it is seemingly an act of violence to even suggest, to even suggest any kinds of sexual limits or restraints. So on the one hand, sex is nothing. It's just chemical firing. And on the other hand, sex is everything. And our culture is telling us that simultaneously. There are even models of sexuality within the church that encourage teens and college students to, or anyone who is not yet married, to completely turn off all sexual desire until marriage because desire in and of itself is bad. If you can pursue absolute sexual purity and avoid all sexual immorality, then God will reward that not only with a spouse, but with the most mind-blowing sexual life that you could have ever hoped for or imagined. Essentially, that all of the pornographic uh, impulses and desires that you have trained yourself in might one day become reality with your wife. It'll be amazing. But just hang on and be as pure as you can, and God will reward that. It's some sort of sexual prosperity gospel, that obedience produces sexual blessing, and the existence of sexual struggle must indicate disobedience and or a lack of faith. And so as Christians, we actually don't give much thought to why God has made us sexual beings in the first place. We don't have a great story for that. The wider culture out there has a wonderful story of meaning, of belonging. But as Ed Shaw says, the evangelical church's basic message to singles is of just say no, and it just doesn't have real credibility anymore. It embarrasses many of us to even ask unmarried people to do it. It sounds positively unhealthy. It lacks any traction in today's world, simply producing incredulity by the majority. And so, even though we need three hours or three decades, let's try to, in the next few minutes, to consider why the Christian clinical psychologist Julie Slattery says that sexuality is not a problem to be solved, but a territory to reclaim. That's, if we just leave here perhaps with that sentence, we'd be making serious progress. That sexuality is not a problem to be solved, but a territory to reclaim. So why did God make us sexual beings in the first place? That is, why did he not make us asexual? He could have. There are other asexual organisms in our world. He could have made me into this blob that like at my belt, like the top half just slips off and now I am two. I could have reproduced myself. He could have made me to reproduce myself in that way. But he didn't. Why? Well, the purpose of a sexual relationship is this. To serve as a living portrait of the life-changing spiritual union that believers have with God in Christ. The reason that God made you a sexual being in the first place, to have sexual relationships with another human is to serve as a living portrait of the life-changing spiritual union that believers have with God in Christ. How's this? Well, it has lots of components. There's lots of moving parts in the sentence that I just gave you. First, let's think about a, a hammer blow. If I had a sheet of aluminum right here and I hit the aluminum with a hammer, what would be left, this impression, is not the hammer, and yet it looks very much like a hammer. 
It looks like the hammer that made it or that of a shadow. A shadow, if we went outside and saw the shadow of a tree on the ground, that shadow is not the tree, though it looks very much like the tree. It isn't actually the thing. This is what the Bible calls types. In the same way that God has purposed the Passover lamb as he was bringing Israel out of Egypt in the Exodus, this was fashioned to be a type of Christ. It is the shadow of the substance, the thing that looks like what the Jesus who would come to lead his people out of a greater slavery, out of a greater exodus. Similarly, God created sexual union to be a type of Christ's one flesh union with his bride, the church. The Passover lamb did not just have and share some happy coincidences. It's not like uh, Paul many years later, is looking back on history, considering what Jesus has done, and said, you know what? That very much reminds me of Jesus. Uh, No, I'm convinced that God, in this story of Exodus, in being outside of time and seeing the future, uh, seeing the, the rescue and the redemption of Jesus, fashioned this story to very much look like it. This is where we get our word, a typewriter. These are hammers of the letter A or W or something that hit the paper and then leave its impression. Jesus is the hammer and hits the paper and leaves an Exodus story. He leaves a sexual story. Think about Ephesians chapter 5, verses 24 through 32. Paul writes this, In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, quoting from Genesis, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. By what logic does Paul ask husbands and wives to relate to one another as Christ and the church? The answer is found in verse 32, that this mystery of the first marriage actually refers to, it points toward Christ and the church. Marriage is a type of Christ's relationship to the church. Jesus and the church, get this, Jesus and the church come before Adam and Eve. Not in an actual chronological timeline, but Jesus and the church, the triune God's understanding of sexuality comes after his understanding of Jesus, the second person of the Godhead and his relationship with the church. And so Augustine says this, that it is of Christ and the church that it is most truly said, the two shall be one flesh. There are two different but complementary beings. Throughout the creation narratives of Genesis 1 and 2, there is unity through difference. There is light and darkness. There is heaven and earth. There is land and sea. There is sky and water. There is male and female. Biological difference and complementarity brings one flesh. And I do not think it is to take us back to an age of sexual repression to say that there is a biological fit to how God has designed and created humanity as sexual beings through difference. Something profound occurs through sexual intercourse. The marriage union is not simply a legal union. 
The marriage union is not simply a social union or a financial union or a familial union, but rather a union of bodies, a sharing of physical life. After the marriage covenant is verbally, verbally agreed to at the wedding, it is ratified with sex. Sex initiates and then sustains the marriage covenant. About a decade or so ago, I was at a marriage, I, don't even, I think it was a marriage conference. It might've been a church planning conference. I'm not even sure, but it was Sam Storms up there. And Sam Storms said something uh, that I thought was initially uh, intentionally just provocative, but not really true. But then the more I've thought about it over the next 10 years or so, I think he was right on. And that he said that sex is very much like communion. Communion in the life of the church, just as when we come to the table and we take of the supper, it is a continual and visceral, tangible, physical reminder of the covenant that we have with God in Christ. It is initiating and then sustaining. Sex is very much the same way. Sex binds and bonds continually and renews the covenant that we have made with our wife if we are married. So that's why sexual expression outside of marriage is so destructive. It's broken apart from its very purpose. Like fire outside of the fireplace, what should be comfort providing, what should be a life-giving place of warmth now can become a destructive place of havoc, of insecurity. But remember that sex is a type it's not a sermon illustration. What Paul is saying in Ephesians 5 is he's not looking back and saying, hey, I'm seeing all these marriages. That kind of reminds me of, of Jesus. No, he's saying all of these marriages actually point to Jesus. And so before continuing about sex and relationships, I want to make sure that we are actually very clear on the gospel first. If all of this if all, our sexual identity, the, pro, the, the, the very purpose for which we are created as sexual beings is meant to point us to and to help us better understand the gospel, then I want to make sure that we are first on the same page about what we're talking about. That of union with Christ. The gospel does say that we are forgiven, that our sins can be forgiven at the cross of Christ. That's why Jesus' death is so important. God is able to forgive sin because his wrath is poured out on Jesus while on the cross. The, the wrath that ought to be towards you and your sin is now attracted, absorbed, and received in the person of Jesus. And forgiveness, our justification, that of our being made right before God, is really, really important. But it's not actually not the end. It's not the purpose of why Christ has come. Justification is just a means to an end. Forgiveness is actually not enough. Why? Because we keep sinning. We often think of the gospel as just a second chance, a redo, a, a, a new chance, a wipe the board clean so I can get better and do better the next time. But we don't just have mistakes erased. We must have our very nature changed. We must have the source of our sinful actions replaced. Our spiritual death must be made alive. So that's why we might define the gospel as, I mean, there's much, much more than this, but we might define it as the good news that God saves sinners through the life, the death, 
and the resurrection of Jesus. Not just the death of Christ, but his life. Just as the husband and wife become one flesh physically, we share in Christ's flesh. We share in his spiritual life. We become united to him. His life, his righteousness becomes our righteousness. Or, in a verse that might sound heretical to you if it weren't in the Bible, Peter says in 2 Peter 1.4 that we become sharers in the divine nature. When we become united to Christ, we become sharers in God. We are born again, new life, not just because we say a prayer of forgiveness or we begin to get better. We get past our, or we get our past forgiven or we begin to make progress with sexual self-control, with controlling our desires. No, we are born again because we receive his life through a union that sex amongst humans is meant to point, point us toward. And so the effect of this is that knowledge of this higher reality, of our union with Christ, of our being sharers in the triune God, knowledge of that higher reality then helps us to understand how we should behave on this earthly reality. In other words, our sex lives should be patterned after the way in which Christ and the church relate spiritually. The way that we behave sexually must conform to that which God has created sex to illustrate. That is, the life-changing nature of the gospel. So just as Christ reserves himself spiritually for his spouse, that is the church, so too are we called to reserve ourselves sexually for our wife. Christ is united to the church alone. Thus, a man must be united to his wife alone. Christ does not divorce his bride. We must not divorce our wife. Sex with our spouse should be means of cultivating deeper intimacy with one another and with God. Sex with our spouse while cultivating intimacy and then, then pleasure becoming just a byproduct, like our union with Christ is ordered toward multiplication, that of go and make disciples, sex ought to be ordered toward multiplication in childbearing, in the discipleship of the family. And so... Our bodies tell God's story. Sex is so sacred and so important, so vital to who we are as embodied human beings because it is the physical way that we understand the draw to, the celebration of covenant love. We married men need to hear this. Like, I always thought of the phrase sex is worship as confusing and really strange. Like sex can be such a worshipful experience. I did not know what that means or meant and really still means some, to some degree or the other. Like was I supposed to like say, all right, hang on just a second. Like, Lord, I lift your name on high. Like we should stop and pray. I don't know. <laughs> not necessarily, I think. Nope, yep. <laughs> Got a firm no. <laughs> But that sex is a good gift to remind us that sex is not merely about getting your desires met, whenever or however, but that sex is a good gift given to two people, not one. It is to point us, like all good gifts, toward the gift giver, in thankfulness and in love. Just like any gift, 
that you might have, the lunch that you are going to eat today, a vacation that you might get to go on, that is not the end in and of itself. Not worship of the gift itself. Sex is a good gift, but a terrible God. And we can approach even marital sex in horribly idolatrous ways. Now, I've said a lot already to married guys. What about you teenagers? What about you guys in your 20s, 30s, 40s, and beyond who are single? I've got a lot more to say about singleness. Uh, In fact, we did a Saturday seminar very similar to this kind of thing with guys and gals at Christ Church a few months ago. You can find the audio of that uh, on our podcast or website. And I think that might be something that married men too would perhaps benefit from and thinking towards not just your own purpose for marriage, but then even thinking through the greater body of Christ, that we are not just churches of married people and teenagers or something, but that we are churches made up of married people, single people, young people, old people, the body of Christ with very many parts. But you single dudes might be sitting here thinking today, yeah, all that sounds great. Everything that you just talked about sounds great for all of you other dudes who actually get to have sex with your wife. So, is celibacy, is the intentional decision either temporarily or long-term to keep oneself from sexual expression, is celibacy inhuman? Is it living less than for what God intends for you? To answer that question with a yes would be to say that Jesus Christ, who lived the most fully realized, the most contented, the most satisfied life in human history, lived less than a human life. Now, there's no doubt that God has hardwired sexual desire into humans, and that's actually a good thing. Marriage is a relationship that requires and demands self-sacrifice, demands self-denial, mutual submission, and love. Why in the world Would humans voluntarily enter into a relationship like that, signing up for self-denial? Well, sexual desire and accompanying desire for intimacy is a strong pull. And yet, the way of Jesus is actually about growing in self-denial, not self-fulfillment. Ed Shaw, who is a same-sex attracted pastor in England, committed to a celibate life, says that Western Christians have, by and large, stopped denying ourselves. We now talk more about our right to be ourselves. Our Christian lives are more about self-gratification. They are merely a continuation of our previous lives with a thin Christian veneer, just being nicer to a few more people. That'll hit. And so even in thinking about marriage, we tend to think about sexual self-denial as something that you have to slog through until you get married. But then, once you get married, now everything goes out the window, and now I no longer have to practice self-denial. Sexual health in marriage is often reduced to merely how often, or is it good, is it satisfying, rather than sexual health being evaluated in our marriages as, is God using our longings to draw us into deeper intimacy with each other and with him? All humans are living with and experiencing some level of sexual brokenness, married or single. Which is why we need to focus less on avoiding sexual immorality and moving toward what Dr. Slattery calls sexual maturity. Yes, we we must turn. We must 
turn from, we must put off, but if we merely focus on putting off the old man, on turning from, we will continually go back. I'm convinced. Dave actually mentioned earlier the expulsive power of a greater affection. If you have a, if you have a milk jug and you want to use that thing for something, how do you get the milk suds out of the milk jug of the plastic gallon? You can't just fill it with a little bit of water and shake it around and then pour it out. You must flush it out. You must fill that thing and so the suds are flushed out. And the same is true with our hearts and with sin. We must be called toward Christ, toward a sexual maturity, a sexual discipleship in which all of our desires come under the lordship of Jesus as we follow him in self-denying joy. But this does not mean that single people lead less than human lives or are living lives of wasting their sexuality. One of my favorite dudes in the whole world, another same-sex attracted pastor committed to a life of celibacy in England named Sam Albury, he says this, if marriage shows us, shows us the shape of the gospel, we've already talked about that, right? Marriage shows us the shape of the gospel, singleness shows its sufficiency. This is why the church needs single people, to remind us that the joy and fulfillment of marriage in this life is partial and can only be temporal. The presence of singles who find their fullest meaning and satisfaction in Christ is a visible, physical testimony to the fact that the end of all of our longings come in Jesus. Or, as Glenn Harrison, he puts it this way, whether we are married or single in this life, sexual desire is our inbuilt homing instinct for the divine. A kind of navigation aid showing us the way home. You could think of it as a form of body language. Our bodies talk to us about a greater reality of fulfillment and eternal blessing to urge us to go there. Your sexual desire is an inbuilt homing instinct for the divine, urging you to go there. I'm sorry to keep quoting people, but I feel like folks who are actually living all of this do carry a little bit more experiential authority, even uh, thinking through their own singleness. Sam Albury says this, this is liberating. It means that my sexual feelings don't need to be met for their purpose to be fulfilled. When I feel that deep sense of longing, that feeling of sexual restlessness and frustration, I am to think that ultimate restlessness that comes when we live apart from our creator. A restlessness that has its answer in the one who promised deep and abiding rest for all who come to him. Sexual sin feels like the answer to that restlessness, but like all of sin's pleasures, it's only temporary and fleeting. Celibacy is not a waste of our sexuality. It's a wonderful way of fulfilling it. It's allowing our sexual feelings to point us to the reality of the gospel that we will never ultimately make sense of what our sexuality is unless we know what it is for to point us to God's love for us in Christ. So we'll get to pornography more specifically in the next session. But a few helpful quick reminders have been so helpful to me to my own heart and mind over the past many years as I experience sexual temptation. And that's first, that this desire, this small sexual desire is just but one millionth of the kind of love that the triune God has moved toward me in. 
The triune God is not moved toward me in sexual desire at all. But if my sexual desire in covenant marriage is like the impression of in the aluminum sheet, the shadow on the ground, it looks like the real thing, then this disordered desire, this disordered temptation of sexual desire away from how God created it needs to be realigned to the real thing. It's like a shadow on the ground that doesn't follow the tree. It doesn't make sense. It must be realigned to look like the tree. And so when desire comes, desire is but just a fraction of God's love for me in Christ. Or second, when desire comes, homing instinct. Thank you, God, for this inbuilt homing instinct for the divine. Help me to go there. Help me to not go there, but help me to go there. Homing instinct. Thank you for this inbuilt homing instinct that you have given me for you. Or third, when temptation comes, I need to be reminded of my union with Christ. Not merely of my forgiveness at the cross, yes, but of my union with Christ. That if the death of Christ belongs to me, if he died on my behalf, then his resurrection life belongs to me as well. A word picture, an image that has changed my life is that of a cemetery where the evil one is prowling about making sure that his captives stay dead under their, buried under their headstones, properly buried in their sin. And as he begins to walk up and down the rows of last name S's, there sits two angels sitting on either side of my headstone. And where was once engraved, here lies Nathan Sherman, dead in his sins, now is just an empty hole. And as sin and temptation come, the angels incredulously ask, why do you look for the living amongst the dead? He is risen. As sure as Jesus Christ is risen, Nathan is risen in resurrection power. And if those three spiritual realities aren't doing the trick that a, a fraction of God's love for me, uh, a homing instinct for the divine of that of why do you look for the living amongst the dead, then I need to be reminded of just over and over and over from God's word of his call on my life, on what he has called me out of and to. And surprisingly, the passages of scripture that are most ongoingly helpful for me are not the verses about sex or desire. We'll consider more Bible as we go, but often the sex verses aren't necessarily what I need. They aren't necessarily the expulsive power of flushing out the milk suds. But perhaps somewhere like Philippians 3, that indeed I count everything as loss for the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, that's stupid, but that which comes from faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Why? That I may know him and the power of his resurrection 
and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means necessary, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. That'll flush it out. Suffering the loss of all things, that by any means necessary, I may attain the resurrection of the dead, that I may know him, that I may gain him and be found in him. So I want to wrap up this session with this. Whether single or married, whether sexually content or sexually frustrated, whether attracted to the opposite sex, whether attracted to the same sex, whether attracted to both, whether attracted to neither, whether having not looked at pornography in years or having looked at pornography last night, that in feelings of longing, that in collapsed moments on the kitchen floor, in the heat of temptation, in the aftermath of guilt or regret, God's grace to you is not hypothetical, but real. Kathy Keller says this, she says, God doesn't inject hypothetical grace into your hypothetical nightmare situation so that you would know what it would actually feel like if you ever did end up in that situation. What we're imagining is actually life in the situation without God's presence, if we are depending on hypothetical grace. He only gives grace for our actual situation. C.S. Lewis makes a similar point when he says, remember one is giving the strength, given the strength to bear what happens, but not the 101 different things that might happen. God gives strength for what is happening now, not what might happen. And so like manna that is new every morning, God's grace for your justification, God's grace for your sanctification is not hypothetical, but real. It is sufficient it is vital. Doing this on your own with discipline or raw willpower will not work. God's grace to you is real. Sometimes discipline, willpower is needed, and we'll talk some about that, but on its own it is never going to happen. All right, so we're going to take a break here. Maybe you're disappointed so far. Uh... Maybe you came here to get punched in the face. Uh, I'm not going to punch you in the face. I might grab your collars uh, in this second session. But we've considered the purpose of ordered sexuality here. So we're going to consider some of these things around our tables now. Why did God make you a sexual being in the first place? Again, if we are missing that question, we will fight all of the wrong battles. So we're going to talk through some of the questions that you have uh, on the sheets in front of you, and then we're going to take a short break, grab some coffee, grab another snack, go to the restroom, and then we'll come back to think about the wreckage of disordered sexuality. Sound good?